Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fallis. My guest today is Sofia Enriquez. Enriquez is a PhD candidate in ethnomusicology at The Ohio State University. Her dissertation project explores Latinx music, identity, and migration in Appalachia and the southern U.S. Her project also documents the musical migration history of her family from the U.S.-Mexico border to the Mississippi Delta to southern Ohio. Sofia is a practitioner of Appalachian and Mexican folk music, including bluegrass, mariachi, and canción ranchera, and performs in Columbus, Ohio as part of the Good Time Girls, a female folk trio that writes original music inspired by intersectional experiences. Welcome to the podcast, Sofia. Muchas gracias por invitarme. Tell me about growing up Latina in Ohio. Yeah, so being Latina in Ohio... Um, I was recently talking to a friend about this and this term or this concept of living in the jagged edges mm. came up mm-hmm. and I feel like that's what it is <laughs> or sort of living in contradiction mm-hmm. and what that means. Um, and I feel like I was um, never really encouraged. You know, I didn't grow up speaking a whole lot of Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad moved to... Um, the Cincinnati region from the Mississippi Delta, where he grew up in a Mexican-American family um, in the 80s. And at that moment, sort of the the Latino community in Cincinnati wasn't quite what it is now. And so, um, and because I was situated like 40 minutes east of the city in a more rural community, my access to the culture was just limited. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like there was this moment um, or there were a series of moments throughout my childhood where this sort of part of my identity would um, would come to the forefront a little bit mm-hmm. um, in terms of the way that uh, I was being treated um, in different like academic or educational settings. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a few teachers who were really quick to remind me of that heritage mm-hmm. in, in not a positive yes. way. Right, sort of being implicated in a community with a lot of um, pretty conservative values, um, which often manifest themselves as racism. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I had I grow I grew a little bit um, numb to some of those references and sort of internalized my Latinaness for a long time mm-hmm. because I felt like I couldn't access it even if I wanted to, mm-hmm. and it wasn't something that I was necessarily encouraged to do. Um, but then there was a moment when I went away to college in West Virginia, West Virginia University in Morgantown. And all of a sudden, I'm away from this very close-knit, um, sort of narrow-minded community. And I'm in, I'm in a different community that um, is interpolating me in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And so as, as a Latina that is white presenting, mm-hmm. but is often read as like ethnically ambiguous somehow, like, mm-hmm. a, you know, Oh, you're something like mm-hmm. what right, is what right. is that something? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being my features being read in a certain way, I think sort of um, like 
ignited this this part of my this desire to better understand that part of my identity in a way that I didn't necessarily feel like I could do mm. growing up in Southern Ohio. Mm-hmm. And of course, I've been a witness of this transformation as uh, as your professor <laughs> this yes. semester, but also just from our conversations from before. And um, and it's inspiring, Sophia, in many ways. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Have you always had a strong interest in music? Uh, and what instruments do you play? Yeah, so music uh, has always been a, a strong part of my story, and it's also a part of my family's story on both sides. Um, my mom's family is everyone plays something mm-hmm. um, very much rooted in a classical sort of Western paradigm of of music learning. So. Um, I took piano lessons since I was four. Um, did that all through all through college, really. Um, piano is still something I, I continue to do. And then the instrument that I started to play in the fifth grade, when we had the um, option to do band or choir, I chose band. Mm-hmm. And I played the trumpet because we had one in the basement because <laughs> my dad played the trumpet all through middle school and high school and college. And my mom also played brass instruments. My sister plays a clarinet. Um, So in terms of my mom's side of the family, um, which has a history from eastern Kentucky and then moving to the Cincinnati region in the mid-20th century, the um, sort of classical music learning is very strong there. And and my dad is, um, like I was saying, grew up in in the Mississippi Delta, also a family full of musicians, but um, more towards the like folk musician side of things so Mm -hmm. people that are sort of just like self-taught a lot of guitar playing happening Mm -hmm. at some family gatherings in Mississippi that I remember a lot of people singing Um, and that sort of connects more to that family's history which I know we're going to get to later but yes music has always been a really strong part of my life and it's something that my parents always encouraged me to pursue um and so as an undergrad, I majored in music education at WVU, and I played the trumpet, mm-hmm. um, which is something I've sort of only recently been reacquainted with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then in um, the band that I play in here in Columbus, I mostly play the bass and sometimes the guitar. Mm-hmm. Would you say that um, this connection with music, with your family, um, also allowed um a way for you to connect with that uh, Latina identity in some way? I would say absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, And like I mentioned, this is something like with the exploring mariachi traditions on the trumpet, for example, Mm -hmm. is something I've sort of only started to do in the past year or so. Um, But understanding that the sort of foundations I have as someone who was brought up in a classical Western paradigm is letting me explore all of these other genres and traditions Mm -hmm. has been really transformative for me. And that was certainly the case for me when I started to explore Appalachian music too, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just me exploring um, Mexican folk traditions, but also um, the Appalachian traditions that I was introduced to as an undergraduate student. Right. And I want to get to that in a little bit, but I wanted to ask uh, first, especially as, as you were an undergrad, uh, what sparked your interest in studying issues of gender and racial representation in Appalachian, Appalachian music specifically? Yeah, so that's a good segue. So mm-hmm. I was a music education major, mm-hmm. and um, I 
there was an opportunity to take a class, actually, my third year um, in bluegrass mm-hmm. music, bluegrass and old-time music. And that was led by a dear friend and mentor of mine who's been really um, helpful along my sort of academic and personal growth journey, Travis Steimling. Um, and I didn't really think of myself as a singer, but I felt this impulse to be there mm-hmm. in, in that like moment of my like undergraduate career is like, I, th- I want to do this and I want to try to sing in this style. Um, and so I did it. And I just, because of the that course and also the community it sort of brought me into, I just immersed myself in that repertoire. So I was learning um, like old country music, um, old time songs, a lot of bluegrass tunes, the murder ballad repertoire, which I kind of want to talk about in a minute. <laughs> Um, and so I, I sort of just like wrapped myself up in this Appalachian music bubble. Um, and West Virginia was an incredible place to Mm -hmm. explore those traditions. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also didn't realize at the time that my own, um, my own like hometown in Southwestern Ohio has an incredibly rich history of Appalachian music, specifically bluegrass too. Um, but when, in terms of exploring racial representation, um, in Appalachian traditions and, and sort of what alarmed me to that, it really just came down to not seeing myself represented mm-hmm. in these communi- in these performing communities and traditions. Mm-hmm. Not only were there not a lot of women on stage mm-hmm. were singing this kind of music, but there were no Latino women. Mm-hmm. And there were few um, black women. Mm-hmm. So it was it was really just not not seeing myself represented in the music. Even though there is a history of this community's producing and performing bluegrass and and this type of music, right, in Appalachia. Yeah, and there certainly is, um, you know, that as a history that's less visible, there certainly is a broader history of Latinos in these cultural spaces in general, Mm -hmm. right, which is what is is unexplored. Um, and, And so just the sort of feeling like I wasn't represented on stage or in these spaces sort of um, triggered the initial interest in race Mm -hmm. as a driving force of a lot of Appalachian music traditions. Um, And then the gendered component of it really came from singing a lot of these songs that really rely on themes and lyric conventions that objectify women. Mm -hmm. Um, The murder ballad, which I mentioned earlier, is sort of the quintessential example of this, which is a genre, a subgenre, of Appalachian music, which, you know, dates to ballad traditions in the British Isles um, in the 17th, 18th centuries, but then comes into this Appalachian context where um, the convention of the subgenre is that uh, women are killed, mm. right? That that's the that's a sort of hook of the song, mm. right? Songs like Knoxville Girl, Pretty Polly, On the Banks of the Ohio, just to name a few, um, these all result in uh, a woman's murder. Mm. Um, and it's often framed musically and melodically in a way that doesn't signal that sort of violence or distress Mm -hmm. um, rather actually registers often as sort of joyful and happy Um, but really is is sort of pointing to this deeper um, problematic history right of of women um, in sort of the the history of the western world more broadly Mm -hmm. but specifically in the Appalachian region and the sort of really harmful, uh, toxic domestic scripts Mm. that they often fall into. Um, So so sort of those two observations 
about the racialization and the genderness of Appalachian music together. Um, and my initial project here at Ohio State as a PhD student, which um, involved an oral history project mm-hmm. about uh, women in bluegrass in the state of Ohio. Um, so these themes were, were being made clear to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I was really um, interested in finding myself in these traditions and these music. And so that's what brought me to my current work. Right. Sophia, as a folklorist, what have you found to be the key for building relationships across higher education institutions and local communities? And I ask this question because I know part of the work that you do um, is going into communities, right, and interview and doing sort of like ethnographic work, right, mm-hmm. um, to in, in, in some ways to sort of rescue some of this voices, traditions, um, bring light, amplify the work that they that has been happening for generations. Um, but we're doing it or you do it within the context of a scholar also. Right. Uh, so, and, and I know it's a difficult um, line, right, uh, between being um, a scholar and somebody that's genuinely interested in, mm-hmm. in working with communities. Um, so I don't know, some, any thoughts about how to do this effectively and, 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 and with a sort of social justice framework? Yeah, yeah. So talking about specifically public-facing projects coming out of the university that are often, often manifest themselves in this ethnographic way that involves like university re- researchers, graduate students like myself, right, um, mm-hmm. literally going into communities to do interview work, documentation work, whatever it may be. I think that, yeah, like what you're, this tension you're getting to is sort of the underlying ethical question mm-hmm. of, of whose work is that to do? Mm-hmm. Um, who, who should be doing that work? Um, and what are the limits of that work? Well, that's a question that I take really seriously in that I think um, that my sort of pull or draw to ethnography among communities that I find myself a part of or among um, a region of Ohio, for example, that I call home Mm -hmm. has been um, a way that I have sort of reconciled some of those tensions. And that also doesn't come without its problems. Mm -hmm. But I think that really what's at the core of this ethical qualm is the idea of care and that this type of work out of a university like Ohio State, which Mm -hmm. is a land-grant university and by law is bound to this idea of returning resources, mm-hmm. right, uh, to the people of the state, which when we sort of contextualize the land-grant university as itself founded on uh, seized indigenous land right. is already a problematic foundation. Mm-hmm. So to what does it mean for a university like Ohio State, which has all sorts of other sort of capitalistic endeavors to then be trying to do this return resource work Mm -hmm. through students like me, right, who Mm -hmm. have these interests in doing this sort of public folklore work, ethnographic work. Um, And so that idea of care and that um, there should be a a heightened degree of transparency in this kind of work, I think it's been really helpful to me too. Um, And specifically in the way that people who are in decision-making roles and authority positions mm-hmm. um, working in this in these types of projects, um, that they are intentional and careful about the types of relationships that they're building with the people on the ground. 
And one of the examples of this, which I know you're familiar with, is the Ohio Field Schools Project through mm-hmm. the Center for Folklore Studies here at OSU, um, which is a extended, long-term, collaborative community ethnographic project that I think really sets a model of this type of work re- in a really good way mm-hmm. and exposes students. So I was exposed to this field school course um, my first year here at Ohio State and have remained involved in an advising role. Um, and so so what is it, you know, for, for people, for staff members at the Center for Folklore Studies here and for graduate students like me to, to go into a community like Portsmouth in mm-hmm. Southern Ohio and build relationships, but then have sustained access to right. them because those relationships stay mm-hmm. in the work of the Center for Folklore Studies. Um, and so I think that that the priorities um, and the goals of this type of work has to come from those relationships with people on the ground, mm-hmm. right? If their voices, their concerns, you know, they, they already know what they need, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, right. and those are the voices that, um, it, you know, if we can't, if they can't physically be here in these spaces, then we need to be doing the work to be able to to talk to them and to bring bring them to the table somehow. And so I think that the um, the way that I've reconciled this tension is investing in places where I already have access, where I already feel um, like I have sort of a connection. And yeah, yeah, and that has um, sort of helped me. I guess I guess sort of understand what I'm doing. I, I guess I have less ethical sort of baggage in some ways because I feel like, you know, the work I do in various communities is very much a part of my own origin story. It's, Mm -hmm. I'm talking, I often am talking to people who I've known my whole life. Like when we went to interview Martin, like, Mm -hmm. you know, that didn't feel extractive because I was, I was connecting in a way Mm -hmm. that was already been there, that that I was connecting with a relationship that was existing, right. But in a different way, um, and I don't think that once you sort of take on that role of researcher that you can ever really separate yourself. Um, there's, there's always this sort of layer, um, or this, there's this space, right? Once you take on this, this, critical, this critical look, or um, even if it's not really critical, right? Once you've, you've engaged in this space that we're in right now, the mm-hmm. university in some way, like you, you enter into the ground, mm-hmm. the community work, it, it's, it's different. And I think it is a challenge for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. Um, as you're describing sort of this work, I always think of the word, or uh, what I was thinking throughout is the uh, word communal. Mm-hmm. And I think we, ex- at, at least the work that I do in oral history and the work that you do as an ethnographer and, and, and also do in oral history is, and uh, with the honor of also serving or being part of the community that we're going into, um, what we experience when we're in, in those spaces is is not extractive necessarily, right? Um, there's this sort of communal um, uh, experience that happens when we're there, um, acknowledging each other uh, and, and really connecting with each other. Mm-hmm. I feel that happens every time I, I do this work, and mm-hmm. I imagine... Um, there's that connection with you as well. Yeah, and specifically in the Latino community, I feel like the response is is extremely affirmative, mm-hmm. right? And that there's a there's a sort of mutual understanding of what this work is trying to do, and that there's a real deep appreciation and 
and sort of mutual respect for it in a way that also lets you feel like like you have those people in your corner right, right. affirmation yeah <laughs> yeah um, uh, yes what i'm doing is it's a it's a good uh for for the community mm-hmm. m- more than anything. Um, Sophia, tell me about your research on Latinx music across Appalachia. Perhaps, perhaps mention some of the, the connection or the history of it. Yeah. So really the whole shtick is that <laughs> when we think of the Appalachian region, right, the sort of maybe the image that comes to mind is, you know, oh, white, poor, backward people living in the hills and hollers. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is not the whole story. Right, right. <laughs> um, and in terms of investigating Latino migration to the Appalachian region, there's this narrative for a lot of parts of the United States that this um, that the migration boom and the migrant labor movement of the 80s and 90s is really when people started to populate that those regions, the southern U.S. and the Appalachian region. Um, but there are for example, Library of Congress photo collections that actually show um, Mexican coal miners living in the uh, coal fields of central Appalachia as early as the Depression era in the 1930s. Um, so there, there's sort of these um, historical scraps mm-hmm. um, that I've been uh, seeking out and to sort of understand, okay, well, well, maybe it's true that um, there, hasn't, there wasn't really a visibility of Latinos in Appalachia pre-80s and 90s migrant labor boom, mm-hmm. um, but certainly they were there, mm-hmm. right? To say, oh, they just weren't there to me is, is not good enough. Right. Um, and so what we see now is, um, well, and I'll sort of backtrack a little bit too and say that there was this, this sort of gap um, this chunk stretch of time, the 1920s through the through the 40s and 50s, where U.S. Legis- um, migration le- legislation was um, very ambiguous and sort of constantly changing, and there was the, like the working out of what this paradigm would be, which was sort of solidified with the um, Braceros mm-hmm. in the 1950s, which sort of concretized this really dehumanizing and demonizing. Um, migration legislation specifically towards Mexicans. Mm. Um, and so uh, what we see now, right, is that these, like, Appalachian locales of Latino migration, um, really the first one that is, like, most visible or notable, I guess, would be uh, in North Carolina in the um, agricultural industry there and migrant farmer um, camps, literally, like, communities that, um, and there's been some, sociology and Appalachian studies literature on this and some documentary work too that are um, emphasizing the sort of invisibility of these communities Um, that they're you know they're to work seasonally and that they're sort of sequestered in in literally like mobile housing communities that are that remain invisible to um, to a larger Appalachian community in both urban and rural context. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of what Latino music looks like in Appalachia now, right, um, North Carolina still factors really prominently. Um, Kentucky just had their first ever Latin music awards show in September. Um, so the, the Latin music scene in Kentucky is really bursting right mm-hmm. now. Um, and the group that actually won Artist of the Year uh, 
in for the Latin Music Awards in Kentucky was a group that I've worked with called Apple Latin, which mm-hmm. I'll talk about in a mm-hmm. minute. Um, you know, uh, the work of Che Apalachi, which um, we can talk about too, right, um, led by Joe Troop from North Carolina. Um, there are – Kentucky has a mediachi um, at Berea College in Kentucky. They just started offering – I think this is their second year of actually offering a course in mediachi. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, northeastern Ohio, Ashtabula County, Guatemalan, um, marimba traditions, and so – um, a lot of this does manifest itself as, like, popular music, right? Latin DJs who are playing trap and reggaeton, mm-hmm. salsa bands. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, there's traditional – there's practitioners of traditional music living mm-hmm. in these spaces, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one of whom I met <laughs> this uh, this past fall in Mate One, West Virginia, um, right. is a, a Mexican singer, songwriter, <laughs> composer mm-hmm. who writes um, for, like, widely – famous Norteño groups living in Mate One, West Virginia. Um, <laughs> the small, yes. small, tiny town. <laughs> yeah, so the, the Latin music scene in Appalachia in itself mm-hmm. is extremely heterogeneous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Sophia, in your research, and you just mentioned this, you talked about Appalachian, Latin grass, and Mexilachan music. <laughs> and I love this, all of those names. I think they're wonderful. Uh, uh, tell us what's unique about each of them. Yeah, so... Um, exploring these emergent traditions or what artists are, these are, these are like the artists, right, words for what they call this music. Mm-hmm. Um, these are really just three examples of what a coming together of like Latinx and Appalachian music could be. Mm-hmm. So for Che Apalachi, who um, they were actually just nominated for a Grammy, which is pretty amazing. Um, that is Latin grass, which I've heard ex- um, explained in several different ways, but um, which is both exploring Latin American music forms like salsa and condombe, um, specifically like Argentinian forms too, on bluegrass instruments. Hmm. So the upright bass, or the not, they don't even use a bass actually, the guitar, the banjo, the mandolin, mm-hmm. and the fiddle. Um, so what would it be like to play uh, condombe r- rhythms or a timbale rhythm, but on the banjo head? Mm-hmm. And that's the t- sort of thing that they're up to. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a real level of musical sophistication happening there, too. And for the case of a group like Appalachian out of Louisville, Kentucky, they're, um, they're claiming a mixture of more South American, um, Andean, musica andina mm-hmm. traditions, mm-hmm. incorporating sort of indigenous um, flute Sounds and instruments like the quena, the zamponias, um, the charango. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really interesting to listen to some of their work and see how, like, oh, that charango part is actually mimicking the mandolin. Mm-hmm. Or the way that the the, the rhythmic um, playing of the guitar is actually sort of following this sort of Andean huayno rhythm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's uh, there's... The Che Apalachi Latin grass, and then there's the sort of more Indian blended with Appalachian traditions of Appalachian, and then the the group that I've worked most closely with, the Lua Project in Charlottesville, Virginia, and what they call Mexilachian music. Um, that's my good friend um, Estella Knott, who who grew up to a Mexican mother and a father with Scotch Irish ancestry mm-hmm. from Appalachia. Um, and for her, it's, sometimes it's a Norteño accordion pattern, but a very sort of 
twangy country mm-hmm. style of singing mm-hmm. um, about Appalachia. It's mixing in the um, regional Mexican folk genre from Veracruz, Son Jalocho, which mm-hmm. has gained a lot of sort of international momentum yes. in the past several years, which mm-hmm. um, the Lure Project incorporates a lot of the rhythmic and melodic and poetic patterns of mm-hmm. Son Jarocho, mm-hmm. um, and specifically the improvised poetic verse of mm-hmm. the decima to to narrate the stories of Latinos in Appalachia. They've um, done some really incredible work through a project called Mexalachian Son, which was um, funded through Virginia Humanities. And one of the things about all of these Appalachian, Che Appalachi, the Lua Project, they're all extremely engaged socially in in communities. Um, and the social justice component that I think you mentioned before mm-hmm. factors really prominently. prominently. I mean, they're, they're often speaking out explicitly against mm-hmm. the xenophobic migration policies. They're, right. they're strategically performing at events and venues where this music is going to be received in a certain way by a certain group of people, mm-hmm. right? The, in all of these instances, my observation has been that there's something really important that they have to say. Right. And some of it is, yes, namosaki. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this idea that the music, um, there's, there's a, it's agenic, right? There's, a, there's an agency to the music, and that, especially in the case of the Lua Project, right, it's pointing, it's signaling this really under-investigated history in the interactions of these two traditions. Mm-hmm. And that to combine something like Son Jarocho with Appalachian Balladry really isn't that far off. I need to, you right? need to give me some titles. I need to go listen to this music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. There's a lot of um, name-dropping happening, but um, <laughs> and a lot of, uh, a lot of some, some technical words here. But yeah, it's, it's sort of, I think these are all, it's all, I sort of position all these different, these instances that I've just talked about as, as ways of debunking the, the exceptionalization of it all, mm-hmm. right? Like that, okay, oh, wow, that's a strange pairing, but is it really? Mm-hmm. Because if, if what we know about migration and the movement of people and music is true, then this really isn't so surprising. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, and so the notion of purism, like it has to be eliminated, it really. It has to <laughs> totally be eliminated. Mm-hmm. And the other sort of where I'm approaching from um, Appalachian music traditions is that the history of music in Appalachia is extremely, extremely heterogeneous and fundamentally multicultural. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of this unfortunate black binary um, narrative that has sort of um, persisted Mm -hmm. in a lot of the way that people talk about Appalachian traditions, this acknowledgement of like black string band traditions um, and an acknowledgement of sort of white appropriation of some of those traditions, but, but less, but still sort of perpetuating this idea that there's, there's, Appalachian music that's black, there's Appalachian music that's white, but we're m- sort of missing a lot of the in-betweenness mm-hmm. in the narrative. And so to me, Latin grass, Appalachian, Mexalachian, that's, that's getting to that sort of some of, the, some of those gaps. Right. That's, that's, those, are the, those are the submerged stories and, and narratives. Do you hear um, in this songs and the various songs, um, styles, uh, groups that you mentioned. Is there a, also a lot of Spanish in the in the lyrics? Yeah, um, all three of these these groups that I've named, um, Appalachian, Che Appalachian, the Lua Project, they all um, incorporate both Spanish and English. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've observed, and I'm sort of trying to still work through in my research too, is how some of the vocal stylings 
um, from genres that we might consider Appalachian bluegrass, for example. Um, and then towards, I'm specifically thinking about Mexican country traditions and ranchera, but there's real resonances there in terms mm-hmm. of the, the performance and the sort of um, vocal colors necessary um, to make both of those work. And so maybe I can show you what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Show yeah. us. If we take the waltz, for example, mm-hmm. which is a sort of fundamental Western music form in 3-4, one, two, three, one, two, three. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been, this is sort of like foundational to a lot of popular musics. Um, so if we take an old bluegrass song, like Blue Moon of Kentucky. Blue moon of Kentucky, keep on shining. Shine on the one that's gone and proved untrue. Blue moon of Kentucky, keep on shining. Shine on the one that's gone and left me blue. It was on a moonlit night, the stars were shining bright. When they whispered from on high, your love is say goodbye. Blue moon of Kentucky, keep on shining. Shine on the one that's gone and left me blue. <laughs> so a really simple 3-4 waltz pattern, but paired with this very um, despairing sort of style of singing in those words there, right? This is a, this is a lament, mm-hmm. right, of lost love, mm-hmm. um, of heartbreak. Um, your love has said goodbye, and uh, these sort of vocal, um, these little glottal flips at the end. Your love has said goodbye, yeah. right? It's sort of as a, as a, um, that's sort of a convention, mm-hmm. right, of this style of singing, um, sometimes called to as the high lonesome style of singing in bluegrass music, mm-hmm. Appalachian music. Um and that's really not so far off from a lot of Mexican folk traditions that were sort of emerging around the same time. If we take Orangeta, that's also a heartbreak song, a lament. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's one. Mira como ando mujer por tu Borracho y apasionada, no más por tu amor. Mira como ando mi bien. Muy dado y la borrachera y la bendición. Here's the really heartbreaking part. Tú. Mm-hmm. 
de mi desencanto y desesperación. I love it. <laughs> yeah, so, so you can see, you can hear there, right, that this, um, this very emphatic... Mm -hmm. um, expressive style of singing in these two instances, for example, a bluegrass waltz in this high lonesome sound and the, the ranchetta, um, sort of, I'm, I'm so forlorn drinking away all my worries. <laughs> You're ripping open a hole in my heart, right? <laughs> that sort of style of singing. Um, to me, it's like, it's the same. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, everything in the, you know, the, the rhythmic and melodic patterns too. Um, so some of these sort of fundamental um, musical resonances have have really come um, come into my purview when I'm sort of trying to make sense of all of this information. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Um, Sophia, I know there is a personal family connection with this music. So talk to us about this. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier about when I was growing up in Southern Ohio, about this connection to the Mississippi Delta, mm -hmm. um, specifically to my dad's family and community there who moved to the Mississippi Delta in the late 20s to work mm -hmm. as sharecroppers right in the cotton fields, moved from the um, Del Rio Acuna border mm -hmm. of Texas and Mexico um, to... And, and found their way to Mississippi because that's where the the water, the flood water was not an issue mm -hmm. at the time. Um, and so one of the things that I'm trying to do in my dissertation and my research is frame sort of the Appalachian region and migration to this part of the country in terms of that narrative, right? Well, okay, we have a lot of, there's a lot of work obviously on, Latinos in the borderlands and in Southern California and in locales where there's sort of this ex acknowledged urban concentration of Latinos like Chicago and the literature of Latinos in the Midwest has sort of gained a lot of momentum. But what about what happens east of the Mississippi, right? Mm -hmm. What about up through um, the Delta, up through um, the Ohio Valley mm -hmm. and the Shenandoah Valley? Like, what is that history? And so to imagine that that my dad's ending up in southern Ohio really isn't isn't also surprising, but is also really, um, I think, meaningful and powerful way to trace this migration that I'm trying to explore. And so my great grandfather, right, coming to the Mississippi Delta in the in the late 20s as a young boy with his family, um, who was a budding fiddle player, they, learning Tejano styles, right, in Mexican fiddling traditions, who really um, just immersed himself um, and developed a community of also Appalachian and old-time fiddling in Mississippi. So um, I'm actually going tomorrow to visit um, with my dad. We always go for Thanksgiving um, because my great-grandfather, Nick Enriquez, was a he was a fiddler, like I've said, of, of both Mexican and Appalachian traditions. Um, and he was a tamale maker. <laughs> and so he started a jam in his tamale shack where people would come and they would play music and he would make tamales and everyone <laughs> would leave smelling like tamales. Um, sounds amazing. Yes, it does. <laughs> and <Regan>. so, <laughs> so this jam, which uh, he started later in life in, in the 1970s, 
uh, is still happens mm. every Tuesday in Cleveland, Mississippi, called the Tuesday Night Pickers. Mm. And so the sort of phase I'm at in, in this component of my research is, is um, I'm going to go see what's going on <laughs> <laughs> and um, try to make some connections with people, with some family that are still living there, and, and with people who would have been students and um, sort of mentees of my great-grandpa um, and to sort of get a sense of how, how those... Um, how those traditions have changed or emerged as different. But, yeah, that's sort of the most obvious and um, very emotional, mm-hmm. right, um, personal connection mm-hmm. for me. That's great. Um, Sophia, I know that um, you're also a musician uh, yourself, and, and um, uh, you have a, you're part of a band here locally. Can you tell me about the music that you sing and compose for this band, the Good Time Girls? Yeah, so the Good Time Girls brings me so much joy, truthfully. <laughs> um, I, it has meant so much to me to be able to to share music in a in an intimate context right we're three women we all um we we do this in a very acoustic way we're exploring styles like americana and sort of singer songwriter so we we play some bob dylan some emily harris we cover a lot of music by women Mm -hmm. um, but we also do write collaboratively and independently and so the songs that i sort of bring to the fore um I write about, you know, love and heartbreak, um, but I also, it's been a really powerful way for me to tell my own story. Mm. Um, and so I would say that the kind of music that I write is sort of in the camp, in the singer-songwriter camp, it's pretty folky, um, but starting to explore, you know, how to, what it would mean to incorporate Spanish mm-hmm. or some of the more Mexican styles that I've been trying to learn more formally mm-hmm. right into my songwriting style mm-hmm. will you play something for us <clears throat> sure <laughs> um let me get sort of re-situated tuning wise here yeah so i've talked a lot about my right my dad's family and some about my mom's family um coming from eastern kentucky right and so this song is really me trying to make sense of those two um, narratives mm-hmm. and also um, so so one of the verses sort of about my dad I guess you could say the other is about my mom and the sort of histories they represent um, and it's also about understanding that all of the time I've spent traveling doing this sort of work I've I feel like I've been literally literally tracing mm-hmm. physically like in my car driving mm-hmm. some of these some of these migration patterns mm-hmm. through and across the Appalachian region and so one of the um, things that's been really transformative me as as someone who's coming into their identity as a scholar and ethnographer is thinking about how these plenty places um, are connective and what I bring into them mm-hmm. and what my connection is to the places. So here's the song, I guess, about that. <laughs> I hear Mississippi in your voice But you don't sound like Cleveland anymore 
got out while you still had the choice Escaped the heat of summer 84 I see East Kentucky in your smile But you don't cry for mama late at night Traveled highway 15 for a while Tore the map and home was out Somewhere in Delrio I heard a Spanish song Never knowing that the places I will go Have been there all along Who I am is where I've been Oh, so much for this velada for me it's like a velada is like a little oh. private concert um <laughs> yeah, tiny desk kind of interview right yeah um is there anything else Sophia that you would like to um share with us about your work or your um future plans um I don't think so I mean I have been so fulfilled right and I know that I'm I'm still sort of in this in the doing stage mm. and will I mean will always be <laughs> um but I think that what I find myself sort of nudging I guess colleagues towards is to do work right mm. that matters to you mm. like Anzaldúa mm-hmm. <laughs> um mm-hmm. do work that matters vale la pena it's mm-hmm. worth the pain mm-hmm. right sometimes mm-hmm. exploring these parts of ourselves or in my case this whole um, sort of unwritten history um, is painful. Mm-hmm. It takes you into the history, in this case, of um, people who have been erased from a certain narrative. Um, it's not easy, but it's it's been very meaningful to me. 
And the fact that I get to come and do something like this and play right. music and make that a part of my everyday has just been really amazing. So right. thank right. you. <laughs> Sofia, thank you so much for this conversation. No, muchas gracias. Gracias. <laughs> a todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Mm -hmm.